Last week, we started a new sermon series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, let's just do a little bit of review background, especially for those of you who might not been, have been here last week. But Galatia was a Roman province in Asia Minor. Think modern-day Turkey. That's where Galatia would have been located. And this was the place of Paul's first missionary journey, the location of his first journey of going into city, various cities to proclaim the good news of Jesus and live it out also in deed or in action. Um, it, he wrote this letter most likely around the late um, 40s AD. So that gives you a little bit of context for when the Apostle Paul wrote. And there's really a major underlying question that uh, serves as the backdrop of this letter. And the question is this, on what basis are Gentiles included in the church? Now, a Gentile is a non-Jewish person. So the question that is really being asked is, on what basis are non-Jewish people included in the church of Jesus? Christianity began predominantly as a Jewish movement. And as we talked about last week, the book of Acts, so there's the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book of Acts follows the story of Jesus told in those Gospels, and Acts tells us the story of the early history of the church and how the Gospel went into new places, new cultures among diverse peoples. And one of the major questions that came out of that was this question, on what basis are non-Jewish people included in the church of Jesus. Now, what we talked about last week is that there were apparently a group of people uh, infiltrating the churches in Galatia saying this, that yes, Jesus is really important. You have to believe in Jesus, but that is not enough. You also have to adopt certain Jewish customs, with circumcision being the most primary. Now, Paul is writing to address this, and we saw last week in chapter 1 some pretty strong language that Paul uses. We even asked the question, is Paul overreacting here? And we concluded with no, and we talked about why, but Paul has very strong language. He's passionate about this because he recognizes that the formula of Jesus plus something else could be anything else leads to spiritual disaster. It leads to spiritual slavery, and Paul is not having it. And so the purpose of this letter is to call young followers of Jesus, young Christians, out of danger, back home to the truth and freedom of the gospel. And the passage that we're going to look at this morning from chapter 2, it's verses 1 through 10, uh, is really Paul's telling of a meeting that he had with certain apostles in Jerusalem about 14 years after Paul came to know Jesus. So let me read um, what Paul says here. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with, with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. In order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. 
Yet because a false brother secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. That's really good news for us even this morning. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And, then, and when J- James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let's ask for the Holy Spirit to teach us this morning. Holy Spirit, that is our prayer, that you would teach us from the word this morning. We uh, come from diverse stories and backgrounds this morning. Uh, Some of us are believing in Jesus, others of us uh, not sure of what we believe, and still others know that we currently don't believe. But we trust that you are able, as we sang about earlier, to come and seek us and find us. We pray that you would do that for your glory and for our good Bring us home to the freedom of the gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So this past week, uh, I think it was Wednesday, I believe, was June 19th, which actually is a significant day. Um, And if you're not familiar with that day, hopefully after this moment and the introduction to the sermon, in future years, you will have a greater awareness of it, and you will take time to reflect on it. It was Juneteenth day. Now, what is Juneteenth? Day. Well, Juneteenth is a mashup of June, but also the date or the day 19. And June 19th commemorates, it's also known as um, Juneteenth Independence Day or Freedom Day. It's an American holiday recognized at the state level, really should be recognized at the national level. Hopefully that happens at some point. But it commemorates the 1865 announcement of the abolition of slavery particularly in the state of Texas. Now, why Texas? Why specifically in the state of Texas? Well, prior to that, almost two years before, the Emancipation Proclamation was made effective. It was January of 1963. But Texas was not a battleground state. Um, It was remote. And so the news of this did not really become realized or announced until the Confederacy had collapsed. And so I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine this particular day. I want you to imagine as those who had formerly been enslaved heard this momentous announcement, this momentous declaration. You don't even have to necessarily, I mean, imagine it, but history tells us that they were so overjoyed that they danced in the streets. I can't imagine. Imagine that. Formerly enslaved, formerly enslaved, all of the harsh treatment, the suffering. And we know that unfortunately after this moment that it did not resolve race relations in our country, sadly. But nonetheless, it was still a momentous occasion, a turning point in history. So much so 
that those celeb- that these formerly enslaved people celebrated their freedom by dancing in the streets. Well, we come to a text this morning which also brings us in on another announcement or declaration or decision that was made and also was momentous, especially in the life of the early church, but it still has implications for us today. And what I want to do in our time looking at this passage is I want to look at how this decision, this declaration that we're going to take a look at, how it results in, how it leads to, or how it even protects both spiritual freedom and cultural freedom, all right? Spiritual freedom and cultural freedom. So Paul, at the beginning of this chapter, he tells us that he went to have a meeting, and it was about 14 years. Most likely, he's talking about 14 years after his uh, conversion. We talked about Paul's dramatic conversion, how he came to know Jesus, and how that changed his life. So this is 14 years after that. Um, And the events that Paul talks about here probably corresponds to something that takes place in Acts chapter 11. So if you're the kind of person who likes to cross-reference and make connections, that's probably the connection to be made. It's also possible that it could be Acts 15. Uh, We don't have time to go into all of the reasons for why I think it's Acts 11 more than Acts 15, but it Um, nonetheless, either way, this is a big decision that was made that affected the early church. And so Paul goes to Jerusalem. Why? We're told that he's directed by a revelation, revelation from God through the Holy Spirit. So he goes to Jerusalem. What does he do there? He tells us that he, in private with uh, certain apostles who were particularly influential, these would have been apostles in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a key Um, location, key center at this point in the movement of Christianity. And Paul lays out the gospel before them that he had been proclaiming, that he had been teaching the churches. Now, why does he do this? It's not because Paul needed validation of his message. I I hope that you've picked up on that already through having heard chapter one and now much of chapter two. Paul was confident in the message. He knew the message of the gospel. He received the message of the gospel directly from Jesus in a life-transforming way. Paul did not need validation of the message. He needed validation of his ministry, particularly validation of those to whom he was ministering to, non-Jewish people. And remember the question. What is the, uh, the question that's always lingering in the background for Galatians? On what basis are non-Jewish people included in the church of Jesus. Paul wanted to make sure that his ministry uh, in the moment, in the present, but also for the future would be fruitful. And that all of those connected to the, the Christian movement would be able to say that, yes, Paul's ministry is valid. And the answer that we're going to provide for that question of how non-Jewish people are included in the life of the church, Paul is correct in what he is declaring. Now, he goes to this meeting, he takes Barnabas with him, one of his companions, partners in ministry, but he also takes this guy named Titus. Now, Paul is, um, Paul's brilliant. This is a brilliant move on his part. Um, some of us are uh, visual learners, aren't we? We, we learn uh, with the help of visual aids. Well, in a sense, that's what Paul's doing here. Paul recognizes, well, I could tell these fellow apostles 
all the cool stuff that's happening. I could tell them uh, about how lives are being changed. Non-Jewish people are coming to faith in Jesus. But you know what? I'm actually going to bring one of them with me in the flesh and blood. It's a, a living illustration of uh, the, 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 some of the things that are coming up in Paul's ministry. And remember this, uh, you know, I said it just a few moments ago as well, that the book of Acts paints a picture for us as the, the good news of Jesus begins to go into all kinds of cultures, all kinds of diverse places among diverse peoples. And issues surface that weren't encountered before. And these, this is what makes the decision, the shared decision here so remarkable that these apostles in Jerusalem are able to affirm Paul's ministry because they would not necessarily have been dealing with these same issues. The issues that they would have been encountering in Jerusalem would have been, in, in the young Christian church, would have been of a different sort. And so you could, I mean, this happens to us in different settings of life. Like it's hard for us to relate maybe to someone else, what someone else is going through. And so the apostles could have possibly said, yeah, I don't know about that, Paul. We're suspicious. Um, we know how it works here in Jerusalem, so they need to be circumcised too. They need to adopt Jewish customs. In a, from a human perspective, that would have been understandable. We often make decisions or relate to people in that way when we can't relate to them. So this is a momentous occasion. This meeting is taking place. Paul's laying out the content of his gospel. He brings this living illustration in Titus before them. And as Paul writes this to the Galatians, I want you to realize that Paul is not just telling a story from his past. It's not like he's just wanting to inform the Galatians of past events from his life. He's reminding the Galatians of his authority as an apostle. What he wants them to see is that his authority as an apostle is on the same level as the apostles in Jerusalem. And that this now is a shared decision and a shared way of moving forward in the church. What do they do? They approve Paul's message as valid. But even more importantly, as we talked about, they validate Paul's ministry. So much so that they recognize, you know what? This is, this is your thing, Paul. This is what God has made you for to help non-Jewish people know Jesus and to bring them into the life of the church. And some of us apostles, we're going to focus, we're going to continue to focus on this ministry that God has, has called us to, but we affirm your ministry, Paul. It's valid. As we said, this is momentous. This is, this is I mean, this affects us today, as I've said a couple times. And the reason is, is because it, results in both, as, we, as I shared earlier, personal or spiritual freedom and cultural freedom. And I want to talk about that spiritual freedom first. Particularly with Titus, this living illustration, this flesh and the blood illustration that Paul brings along with him. Like how, how can you in, invalidate uh, Titus's life, right? His true conversion. It's not just Paul saying, hey, I know this guy in Galatia, uh, he came to know Jesus. No, he brings Titus with him. Titus most likely shares his own story to the uh, apostles in Jerusalem. But what this illustrated was the principle that a person becomes spiritually clean. They become right with God. They find favor with God 
and are made acceptable, not through any rituals or actions that they must perform, but simply through faith in what Jesus has performed. This is getting us into the idea of spiritual freedom. Because if the apostles would have said, no, actually, Paul, the formula is, yes, Jesus is really important. You have to have faith in Jesus, but you must also become Jewish. You must also adopt Jewish customs. Had they said that, it would not have only had cultural implications, which we'll talk about, it would have had spiritual implications. Why? Because what would have been decided, what would have been proclaimed was that, yes, you have to have faith in Jesus, but you also must do stuff too in order to earn God's love and his favor. If we add anything to Christ as a requirement for acceptance with God, we reverse the order of the gospel and we destroy its message. That is really what is being proclaimed, uh, boldly proclaimed and decided here in these events that Paul is recounting. God accepts us through faith in Christ, then we follow him. When we reverse the order, like I said, it leads to spiritual disaster, but we also lose the uniqueness of Christianity itself. Because I I believe that if you consider world religions, if you consider most approaches, philosophies to life, inevitably, part of the formula includes what you must do, certain rituals that you must perform, um, certain cultural customs that you must adopt. And the beauty of this moment, this this moment that has profound implications for the history of the church, the beauty of this moment is Paul and the apostles are saying, no, the gospel is different. The gospel is beautiful. The gospel is Unique. It is faith in Christ plus nothing else. What's interesting to me is this. I I encounter many people, um, and you may be one of them here today, and you probably encounter many people like this as well, who are just really uncomfortable by religion. Uh, It just makes them really uncomfortable especially as we, last week, we talk about things like doctrine, beliefs, all of that. Now, there are different ways to use the word religion. Um, The fact of the matter is, is that Christianity is a religion. Um, James talks about what that religion is supposed to look like. It's not being uh, corrupted by the world and also caring for orphans and widows in their distress. So the Bible uses the word religion. But there's also a negative way to use the word religion, and really what is intended by that use is a human-centered or human-driven approach to uh, belief and to trying to relate to God. The, The word I would use instead would be something like moralism or legalism. Last week, I mentioned that it's really important for us to um, separate morals from moralism. All right? Mor- moralism is bad. That's bad. I'll, I'll say why in a moment. Morals is good, are good. Um, there's such a thing as moral beauty. God intended for the world to operate in a certain way. God has laws. He has commands. And 
as we learn to abide in them and live in them and, and um, come home to them, uh, we are remade as human beings. We're made for the life that we were intended for. And all of God's laws are directed toward love, love of God and love of neighbor. This is how God establishes his, his laws and commands in Scripture. So morals are good. Morals are, are beautiful. Moralism is bad. Moralism is ugly. Because moralism is an approach to morals that says, all right, the way that you really find favor with God, the way that you really become whole as a person in life is by trying really hard to live up to whatever moral standard it would be. And you know this. I don't need to tell you this. You know this from your own personal life. It leads to personal and spiritual slavery because it's never, ever good enough. It's never good enough. How do you know when you've arrived? How do you know when you've achieved it? And then it also leads, this will fall more under when we talk about cultural freedom, what ends up happening is that you need something, right, to kind of beef you up, make you feel better. So you look at others and how they're failing morally, and you tell yourself, well, I'm better than them, so now I'm really whole. Now I really have favor with God. Moralism, legalism, this approach to religion always inevitably leads to personal spiritual slavery. The Bible critiques this from beginning to end. So if you're really into critiquing religion, as I'm talking about it here, you actually should love the Bible. Remember chapter one, if you were here last week, how harshly Paul talks, how strongly Paul talks? It's because he's critiquing moralism. He's critiquing legalism, and he's saying that when you take this approach, when you say this is Christianity, you are losing the uniqueness of the gospel, you're destroying its message altogether, and it is no gospel at all. We are by nature suspicious of grace, and grace is really the opposite of moralism. Grace is the idea that we find favor with God in an undeserved way. We don't earn it. We don't do anything to achieve it. It's been earned for us by Jesus, and we simply are called to respond in faith, in trust. But because we are suspicious of grace, because this is really kind of our default mode or setting in life, we are grace avoiders. And so what we need to regularly practice is rehearsing the gospel. This is um, one of the big reasons that we gather on a weekly basis for worship, because we need to rehearse the gospel together. We need to be reminded of it. All through the week, we've been trying to avoid grace in different ways, right? Trying to contribute to our salvation. Now, some of us have good theology. We'd say, no, that's not what I'm doing. But in practice, so often that is what we are doing. And so we need to come together for worship and we need to rehearse the story. We need to rehearse the gospel. We need to remind one another that we find favor with God, that we rest in God's love, not because of what we do or what we don't do, but by faith in what Jesus has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. The gospel is counterintuitive. And so we need to know that um, up front. We need to know that it's counterintuitive. And the way to get beyond that is by constantly coming back to it. And that's Paul's call in this letter. 
He's coming, he's calling the Galatians out of spiritual danger, out of spiritual enslavement, back to the good news of Jesus. Let's talk about cultural, the cultural freedom aspect now. Here's a, a, another way of, of talking about the issue at hand here in Galatia. Paul is arguing for the gospel, as we've seen, to be what is most important in life. These Judaizers, this group of people that are coming into the church saying it's Jesus plus something else, they're saying, no, the most important thing is also our culture. All right? So I want to make sure you have that. Paul is arguing in Galatians that the most important thing in life is the gospel. This group in Galatia, they're saying, no, no, no. Yes, Jesus is important, but actually really what is most important is our culture. So what does Paul do? Well, we've, we've, we've been saying it. He focuses on the gospel. He uses the example of Titus. And let's come back to now to this example of Titus as we're thinking about cultural freedom. The apostles could have said, yeah, sorry. I mean, to, to become a Christian is really to become Jewish. Titus has to be circumcised as well. He has to become Jewish in effect. But they said the opposite. They recognized that actually Paul, uh, 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 Titus can remain who he is culturally. He does not have to become a Jew because he has faith in Christ. He has favor with God. And this would have been dramatic moving forward because many would have learned about Titus and his story and it would have become common knowledge that Titus had been received into fellowship, into membership of the church, and he was not circumcised. Now, here we, we talked about, last week we talked about morals and moralism. We also uh, talked about different categories of the law, and, and I think this is helpful. So last week we talked about how there are um, two, we'll just, for now, we'll use two big categories. There is the moral law in the Bible, and there is the ceremonial law. The moral law refers to that which is beautiful. It's rooted in creation, God's intent intention for creation. So think of like the Ten Commandments, for example. The Ten Commandments are meant to be beautiful. They're meant to be embraced. And when we actually lean into them and live them out fully, we find our stride as human beings. We um, thrive and flourish, not only personally, but as we um, seek to live according to these, we can help our culture around us to thrive and flourish. That's the moral law. The moral law still um, is abiding today. The moral law doesn't go away. And here, that, that's a key point even about personal and spiritual freedom. Faith, when we say that salvation is based on faith in Christ, we're not saying then that you're free to live however you want. That actually is personal slavery, to live however you want. Rather, what happens is when we come home to the love and favor of God, it changes us. And we desire to walk in God's ways, to submit ourselves to God's commandments, and to grow into the people that God desires for us to be. So that's the moral law. But in the Old Testament, there's also the ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law are, um, this refers to things such as dietary restrictions for the Jewish people. It refers to things like circumcision 
And the ceremonial law was specific to Israel in a particular time of history. Why did God establish the ceremonial law? Two big reasons. One, because he wanted to set his people apart from the other nations in that moment of history. Because he wanted to shape and form them to be a people who would learn to walk in his ways, to know him through, by grace and his promise to send a savior, and so that eventually these other nations would be invited in. That's one reason for God to set his people apart. But the other reason was for God to display that he is set apart, that he is holy, that he is different, and that because of sin, because we are out of relationship with God, because of our rebellion against him, we have to be cleansed in order to come back to him. And we can't meet the standard. We can't do these things. That's the ironic thing here, is that ultimately what the Judaizers are insisting on is impossible. And that's why it leads to personal slavery. But back to this cultural um, freedom now. So we have the, the moral law, the ceremonial law. And for the Old Testament moving into the New Testament, basically, for the most part, you essentially had to become Jewish to really become part of the people of God. But there's a change here, and that change is um, being really fleshed out in this meeting that Paul's referring back to. This uh, uh, is a momentous uh, decision, a momentous occasion, like we said, not only for personal freedom, but for cultural freedom. Because what this is saying is that Gentiles could become full members of the people of God without becoming Jewish in custom or culture. Membership in the people of God was now open to people of all cultures. Now, the, sadly, the church has gotten this so wrong for so long. We, we've all heard stories of, um, particularly from the West, missionaries going to other countries, they proclaim the gospel, but it's not just a formula of Jesus plus nothing else, it's Jesus plus our culture. That you have to, to really be a good Christian, to really have favor with God, you have to become like us. This is, that is in direct violation to the decision that the apostles made in this meeting in Jerusalem. And it's actually beautiful, and it's another way that protects the uniqueness of the gospel. Because there's uniqueness to the gospel as far as personal freedom, but there's also uniqueness in the gospel in terms of cultural freedom. Because in the gospel, people from diverse stories and backgrounds, people, people of different cultures can come into the church, be counted among the same people of God, but keep their culture. Keep their culture. That's important. Now, I mean, this is true of every culture. There are things that are good and beautiful and things that are sinful and corrupted. And that's true of every culture. But God is the creator of culture. He's the creator of cultures. He's the creator of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, as we looked at from Revelation a couple weeks ago. And this is what is beautiful about the gospel and the church, is that people with diverse stories and backgrounds of, from a variety of cultures can exist together under the name and banner of Jesus. And we can celebrate what is good in one another's cultures. Why don't we do that? 
Well, this, I think, is where cultural freedom and spiritual freedom link. It's because we sometimes feel threatened. We're threatened by our own insecurities. We're not really embracing God's love for us in Christ. We keep falling back into this mentality of that we must do, we must achieve, we must be better in order to really be loved by God. And one of the ways we do this, both individually and collectively, is we elevate our culture. And we think of our culture as better, we think of it as more highly than other people's cultures. And even if we never say this, or even if we would never articulate this belief, the way that we live is you're not really fully a part of the people of God, or you're not really fully a Christian unless you are like me. It's what it comes down to. Unless you are like me. That is not only cultural slavery, it is freedom, it's personal, spiritual slavery. Because it not only harms others, it's harming ourselves. It harms ourselves in at least two ways. One, it roots us or entrenches us more deeply in spiritual slavery. Because we're trying to elevate, we're trying to feel morally superior because of our culture. But we also are losing the opportunity to experience all of God's beauty and all of his goodness in other people and the cultures that they bring to the table. And so we are the lesser for it. There's also another implication of this. And this is why the early church grew so rapidly, I believe. Um, John Stott was a pastor. He's no longer living. was a pastor and wrote commentaries. And he wrote a commentary on, um, this one is actually on the book of Acts, I believe. But he says this. The implication of this, and it's basically all that we're talking about, is that we can adapt the gospel to different people without changing its essence. This is an important implication for mission. If we fail to adapt the gospel at all to the interests of people, or if we over-adapt it and lose its essence, we will fail to persuade and win people into its joy and freedom. That actually was not John Stott. (laughs) That was someone else. Here's the John Stott quote. It's related. I got to the end of the quote and then read in big caps, John Stott, before the next quote. Here's the question that he says they're arguing with. Or, or, or trying to come to terms with in Galatians. Was their vision big enough to see the gospel of Christ not as a reform movement within Judaism, but as good news for the whole world and the church of Christ as the international family of God? I, I think that he's right. That was actually what was on the table. It was what was at stake Earlier in Galatians chapter 1, Paul says that the gospel is at stake here. What is the gospel? Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel in other letters. And this, I remember a few years ago, I was actually serving as a pastoral intern at a multi-ethnic church plant. And part of my research that summer was to research multi-ethnic church planting. And Part of what I came across was Paul's phrase, mystery of the gospel throughout 
his letters. Do you know what the mystery of the gospel is? Jew and Gentile together in Christ. That is the mystery of the gospel. Think of the implications of that. Our world, we, the world we live in is so divisive. It's so divided. It's so hostile. We're always trying to find ways that moral superiority over others, whether it's cultural or whatever it might be. And what is one of the reasons why so many people in our culture have such a hard time taking the church seriously? Because they see all of those same things at play in the life of the church. What if we actually took the mystery of the gospel seriously? What if we did not elevate our cultural customs over those of others? What if our heart's desire, what if our prayer was, was really to become a more diverse people? And not just simply for, um, because that's the end goal. That is not the end goal. That's not the end goal. It's a fruit of the gospel. Sorry, Israel, I stole that from you. <laughs> that was a quote from my, my friend Israel, who yesterday said that the goal of the gospel is not diversity, but it's a fruit of the gospel. And Paul affirms that here. The mystery of the gospel, Jew and Gentile together, and it was in this meeting that the apostles said, yes. What if the world looked on to the church, into the church, into our church in particular, and said, I'm drawn to something of substance. I'm drawn to something that is life-giving. I'm drawn to what is happening there because what I see is people coming together who wouldn't, necessarily, who, who wouldn't otherwise come together. What is the reason for that? What is the answer to that? And what if we were able to respond? Gospel freedom. Jesus pray. Jesus, we look to you. We trust that you are able to do things in the life of our church that we doubt, that we think are too big. We pray that you would convict us of our small faith, that you would convict us of our sin. We pray that you would rescue us from our personal our, our spiritual slavery and our cultural slavery. May we be a people who are free in the gospel. And as a result, may we be a people who are enabled to love one another in you. Jesus, we um, dream and imagine of what you could do, and we anticipate it. So we pray that you would do a work in our midst for your glory, for the good of our church, but also for the good of our city and region. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.